As a rule, um, I, don't, I don't teach the Bible for the sake of teaching the Bible. Um, and uh, I don't mean, don't mean to be shocking when I say that. What I mean is, uh, as, as a leader of a, of a faith community, what I try to do is I try to teach truth. I try to teach truth about the universe. I try to teach truth about God. I try to teach truth about life. And then I use the Bible as a great tool for teaching truth, right? So just a slightly different uh, way uh, of thinking about it. Because the Bible is an absolutely unmatched tool for teaching truth. For teaching truth and for teaching truths about living out truth, if you know what I mean. Uh, it is a truly inspired book, and, and it's really unlike anything else in human history. I mean, just the fact that we have a Bible in, in the manner that it exists is a miracle, in my opinion, because the book that we call the Bible was written over literally thousands of years by people who were separated by geography and culture and, and centuries worth of history, and yet the document flows together rather seamlessly once you get the hang of, of its structure. Uh, and that's just absolutely inexplicable. I mean, just the fact that there is this Bible and it reads as it does, I think should convince people that there is a God, but, but that's, just, that's just me. But the thing is that you could know the Bible perfectly well and still be lousy at living a godly life. And I learned this early on uh, when I was a kid by reading the Jesus stories in the books that we call the Gospels in the Bible. And I noticed that the main opponents of Jesus in the years when he walked the earth were the religious leaders who had dedicated their lives to be experts in Scripture. Have you noticed that? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. These were people who had dedicated their lives to being experts in Scripture. I mean, they, they were phenomenally good. Like they had memorized at least the first five books of the Bible. Uh, there's legends that certain Pharisees could, could just uh, put scrolls on the wall and just throw a pebble or something against the scroll. And wherever it would hit, they could tell you what that paragraph said just by its location on the scroll, on the parchment. Uh, it might just be a legend because scrolls were really valuable and I can't see anybody throwing rocks at them. But anyway, they were super dedicated uh, to learning the scripture. And yet, you know, they were Jesus' main opponents, right? Can you guys hear me okay? Okay. Um, so you don't want to just be an expert in scripture. You want to be an expert at uh, living the life of truth and living a life with God, living the kingdom life, and really using scripture to help you with that because it is just like unlike any other tool we have. Uh, it's fabulous. Uh, in other words, you want to understand what the Bible is for, not just what it says, but what it means. And those are two very different things after all. Um, it helps to think about why this or that story is actually included in the Bible. I mean, why did somebody stick that in here? What's going on? Uh, what, what's, its, what's its place? Uh, and, and what the story tells you about life with God, about living it out, about living out the truth. Because I think the goal of any scripture is to get us to live out the truth about God and to be, as Jesus said, salt and light uh, in the world. Uh, sometimes, uh, these are fashionable for a while for Christians to describe the Bible as a recipe book. Have you ever heard that? 
of the Bible is my recipe book for life, and I, I always cringed at that. It is far more sophisticated than a recipe book. It just doesn't give you uh, unthinking instructions to follow. It gives you stories and principles with which to interact and to meditate and to digest and to expand uh, your life. Uh, here, here's what I've noticed. Having gotten to know God a bit and having experienced a bit of what it's like to live with God on this earth, I find that scripture provides me with insights and assurances and, and helps in almost endless supply. I've been reading the Bible since I was four years old, and, um, and it still interests me uh, a great deal. Uh, last week, uh, I was sharing just life principles that I have learned in over five decades of living now, and, and one of the things I've learned in walking with God is that it's relatively easy to kind of find life with Jesus and much, much harder to finish life well with Jesus that one of the vital skills of following the Lord is the skill of being able to do it for a long period of time. And it's like a separate skill. You know, finding Jesus, that's one thing. Walking with Jesus across decades, that's a different thing. And, and I have noticed that in my life in churches, for instance. It's like people that are just like phenomenal Christians, like five years later have just like fallen away completely. And when I was young, that would screw with my head. Like, what the heck? How does that happen? And I remember the day I thought, well, what does Scripture say about that? And then all of a sudden, boom, like I couldn't count the number of verses I could think of off the top of my head where Scripture addresses precisely that problem. And we went through five or six of them in last week's sermon. I just started dealing them out uh, like cards in a deck. And Jesus said that, you know, in the end, the... Uh, the Love of most will grow cold. In Galatians, uh, Paul says, um, do not grow weary in the doing of good works. So you will reap a harvest at the appropriate time if you do not give up. There's just tons in Scripture about the life skill of not giving up. That's just one example uh, that we, uh, we processed recently last, last week. So although uh, I try to teach truth and I use Bible as as a tool to do it well. Sometimes I do think it's really helpful uh, to do some teaching in which we just dive into a chunk of scripture and we sort of experience together what it's like to analyze and digest scripture uh, so that um, everybody grows in their ability to interact with scripture for himself or herself uh, because that's a vital skill. And I think it's part of growing up uh, in, in our life with God. Uh, the Bible is, is a compendium of wisdom and stories unlike any other book uh, in the world, and you need to learn how to interact with it for yourself, and it will become your anchor. It will become a helpful lens for your life. And so I just wanted to take a few weeks as we ramp up toward the all-church retreat just to dive into a hunk of Scripture and to go through it uh, more or less line by line and to kind of model together how one does that. Um, and uh, I find it fun. Uh, more importantly, I find it uh, really, really valuable. Uh, so, uh, so I want to do that uh, today. Uh, and the chunk of scripture I've cho chosen is just a, it's a minuscule chunk of scripture from the Bible. I've chosen the life of this fellow named Gideon. 
Have you heard of Gideon? Yeah, he puts Bibles in hotels. <laughs> Some people don't get that. Um, <clears throat> Gideon uh, was this uh, leader of Israel uh, for a, a relatively brief period of time. And we read his story in a book of the Bible called the Book of Judges. Uh, comes early uh, in the New Testament. Um, what is it, number seven in, in Scripture? Uh, and Judges is uh, it's a history book, and it contains stories of great leaders of Israel um, that fall between uh, Moses and Joshua leading the Israelites into the Promised Land, and then the time in which the people demanded a king for themselves. Uh, so there was a good period of time, like over 500 years, where there was no formal leader in the nation of Israel. Well, what happened is that the Lord would just kind of raise up uh, a, a really great figure. Uh, often it was men, occasionally women. Uh, so very interesting stories from the ancient world uh, where, you know, women were not that well regarded as leaders. But you get all sorts of interesting stories. And uh, this is a story about one of those judges, they were called. Judges, lords would be another way to translate that word, or simply leaders. But the early Bible translators came up with the word judges, so it has stuck. That's what the book uh, of Judges is. Here's a nutshell summary of Gideon's life, and it matches the summary of the life of a lot of the judges. Israel, as a nation, had gotten itself in trouble. Happened all the time. Uh, it was a very up and down national history that they had. And what would happen is that they would they'd be with God, they would be doing great, they'd be following God's precepts, and then they would fall away from God. And then they would start worshiping false idols, and they would drift into the pagan religions of uh, the peoples that surrounded them uh, in, in the Middle East. They would drift away from their worship of the one true God. And soon after that, they would fall into disarray, and then inevitably, they would be subjugated, they would be invaded, and they would be oppressed by uh, the tribesmen around them. In, in Gideon's time, it was the Midianites. Uh, it was a group of people that lived near Israel, uh, to the east, uh, and they would invade Israel, and they, they just oppressed them terribly. They dang near enslaved them. They would invade periodically and steal all of Israel's crops. They'd let Israel grow the food, and then the Midianite armies would come in and take the food and go home, and Israel was just impoverished. And it, it got so bad that some of the Israelites uh, left their villages and their towns, and they went up to the mountains, and they hid in caves. It was just as low as you can be uh, as a nation. And, uh, and everybody was depressed. And then God came and spoke to this young man named Gideon. And even though he didn't have very many resources, he arose as a national leader, led the Israelites to conquer the Midianites, and gave freedom back to their country. That's, in summary, uh, what, what the deal is. Um, so we're going to, it's in Judges 6, 7, and 8, the story of Gideon's life. You could count chapter 9 a little bit because it has to do with the story of his sons. But basically, three chapters that will go in together over the next three or four weeks. I'm going to read you the opening to chapter 6. This isn't in your program because I can't print it all. Uh, but here you go. Just to just characterize the situation that Gideon found himself in. 
The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, which is the southern extreme, and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Oh, finally, here it is. They start to turn back to God a little bit. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. There weren't many prophets in those days, so a prophet was kind of a special, special person. He sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. In other words, I didn't intend for you guys to be oppressed. That's not my will. And I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. And then we pick up the story. It's going to be in your program. Um, it's a long text, so it's printed kind of on the back. If you open it up, You'll see it's on the back, and then it spills over back to the front. So if you just open it up and hold it flat in front of you, or you could follow along in your smartphone Bible, or if you're a real Christian, you have an old-fashioned hardcore paper Bible, and you can open that up to Judges 6, and the angels will smile on you. Again, not sure that's great theology, but it's cool. <clears throat> And we'll just sort of decipher this uh, as we go. <clears throat> the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to uh, Joash, the Abiezrite. Yeah, I don't know how to pronounce that either. Where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Um, the angel of the Lord, some of you know this, but the word angel can mean like angel, like, you know, a spiritual being with wings that, that visits you from the sky, that sort of person. Or it can simply mean messenger, right? Uh, like, a, like a prophet would be a, a messenger uh, of the Lord. So as this story opens, it opens with the phrase, angel of the Lord uh, comes to visit uh, Gideon's house, but don't think like the angel Gabriel at this point. Like, we don't, we don't know exactly what it means. So this, this messenger of the Lord came, sits down under an oak tree uh, in, in Ophrah. The legend has it that this is how Oprah Winfrey got her name. Uh, her mother liked the name Ophrah, but misspelled it. You won't remember anything else I say in this sermon, but you'll remember that trivia about Oprah. Uh, that belonged to Joash, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> and 
uh, Joshua's father to this guy Gideon, and Gideon is threshing wheat, which is how you separate the, the chaff from the kernels of wheat, uh, in the wine press to keep it from the Midianites. The wine press was basically a hole in the ground. So the story opens, and a messenger of the Lord comes to talk to Gideon. Gideon is trying to harvest some wheat, literally hiding in a hole, all right, so that the Midianites, so he can hide the grain. Uh, from the Midianites once he gets it threshed. Uh, <clears throat> when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Ironic, given that he is hiding in a hole. I don't think you appreciate that irony. Everybody go, ah. There's layers of interest as you read these stories in the Bible. If you kind of pay attention and let things bother in you, why, why is he threshing wheat in a wine press? You can eventually figure it out, uh, either through footnotes or commentaries or just thinking it, it through. So uh, he's, in a, he's hiding in a hole. Uh, <clears throat> the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Well, that takes Gideon aback. Uh, pardon me, my Lord. And again, he's not saying like Lord God. He's saying, pardon me, sir. So Gideon, you know, probably hasn't quite figured out who he's talking to yet. Pardon me, sir, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Ah, so... Gideon is hiding in a hole, and he's got him a little cranky, right? And so this guy shows up and says, hey, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon might even feel a little bit insulted, like, mighty warrior, right? Are you making fun of me? You know, the Lord is with me. Uh, have you noticed I'm hiding in a hole, trying to provide a little bit of food for my family? And uh, how can God be with me when life is so bad? Has anybody ever had an experience like that? You got to like shout amen or wave your hand at me or something. It's like obviously God isn't with me because life sort of stinks. Obviously. Classic human problem. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very common human problem. Where is God? Where is God? Everybody say that out loud. Thank you just so that you're in uh, the story. Uh, the Lord turned to him and said, now this is a clue uh, in, in the text. We're starting to understand who this person is. The Lord turned to him, the, the leader, the judge, this powerful figure turned to him. We haven't been told who this guy is, but we're starting to learn that, oh, this is a special messenger. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? So right away, Gideon's starting to think, well, whoever this guy is, he's speaking for God. Right? Am I not sending you? Uh, but what a thing he has spoken. Go in the strength you have. It's like, I'm sure Gideon didn't feel very strong, seeing as how he was hiding in a hole. Uh, but, but the Lord, through this messenger, says, uh, uh, go, use that strength, beat up the Midianites, it's going to be awesome. 
pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? Uh, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. So Gideon very politely says, yeah, I don't feel very strong. Uh, I'm in a hole. And, uh, and the land is a mess. And the Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Isn't, isn't this, you know, this is how I start to interact with Scripture. Isn't, isn't this God all over? You say, God, my life stinks. Save me. And God says, all right, you do it. Anybody? Because here's the deal, and here's what I think the theme is often in the book of Judges, and here's what I think the theme is in the story of Gideon, because I've read the whole thing all the way to the end. God hates it when humans feel powerless. And he particularly hates it when his humans, the people who have called on his name, feel powerless. And one way you can read Almost the entire Old Testament is God coming to people and trying to teach them that they're not powerless. That particularly with him, they can in fact reshape the earth. And he is so committed to this principle that he constantly drills his people on it. Oh yeah, the Midianites have, yeah, you, you, your situation sucks. What are you going to do about it? Use the strength that I've given you. Climb up out of that hole. Come on, let's go. And then the Lord builds up his people and begins to drill them in the exercises that remind them of who they truly are. I think that's a pretty fair synopsis of a great deal of, of the whole Bible. Uh, and here we see God doing it with an individual, which is one of the things that makes the story of Gideon's life so incredibly powerful. God says, hey, you're the solution. Uh, clearly you have a massive problem. I want you to understand that you're the solution to the problem. I'm with you. Come on, uh, let's, get this thing, let's get this thing done. That provokes uh, Gideon. <clears throat> Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. And I know that sounds really weird, and this is an, this is an ancient text with ancient construction. This is what's going on, I think. There's this guy talking to Gideon. Gideon thinks that this guy is maybe a prophet, maybe sent by God. The guy evidently feels entitled to speak for God, and Gideon's like, hold on a second, hold on a second. <clears throat> How do I know you're really speaking for God? What I want is a sign. I don't want a prophecy. I don't want you to say something encouraging to me. I want to see God actually do something so that I know it's not just empty words. And that's the difference between a prophecy and a sign. Uh, and so he asks for a, a sign. <clears throat> <clears throat> Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. So this is very ancient ritualistic thinking. It's like, I need a sign from God. And to get a sign from God, what you do is you do a ritual. You kill something uh, or you, uh, you know, present something valuable to God. And then you wait for him to respond in some sort of supernatural or miraculous way. That was classic religious ritual back in this day. So that's what's, that's what's going on here. Gideon went inside, prepared a young goat, 
and from an ephah of flour, or a little bowl of flour, he made bread without yeast, which is to say he made it quickly. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to, to the guy under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. Offering something on a stone altar would have been classic ritualistic behavior. And Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of his staff that was in his hand. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. All right, things just got freaky. Obviously, there's something supernatural going on here. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now he understands that it wasn't just some human prophet speaking for God, but it was a supernatural being, some manifestation of, of God himself. And he freaks out because, as many of you know, a human wasn't supposed to be able to see the face of God or to see the presence of God and survive. That was too much. So he's like, ah, now I'm going to die. I got my sign, and it's going to kill me, which is great faith-filled thinking. But the Lord said to him, peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. Uh, you will notice a transition in the story here. The angel of the Lord, the figure, the guy who had been speaking to Gideon had disappeared. But in the very next line, the Lord spoke to Gideon. So what's going on here? Now God is speaking to Gideon directly from heaven. He's just speaking into Gideon's heart, not through the intermediary of an angel or a prophet or something like that. A super important revolutionary life moment has happened here. God has spoken to Gideon directly, and Gideon has learned to hear the voice of the Lord. It's just himself, supernaturally, which technically makes Gideon a prophet, particularly in those days. That changes everything. And the first word the Lord speaks to Gideon directly is peace. Shalom. Chill out. It's good. However you want to translate it. <clears throat> peace. Do not be afraid. You're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Abizrites. <clears throat> the moment is so significant for Gideon that he builds an altar there. But note that he doesn't build the altar to commemorate God's call in his life. He doesn't build the altar to commemorate that God has promised to deliver Israel from Midian. He builds an altar to commemorate conversation with God. God has spoken to me and it's okay. That's worth an altar right there. Uh, God speaks and I have heard. Whatever else happens, I want to remember that. So he built a commemorative altar uh, right there. This whole idea of seeing the face of God and dying, where did that come from exactly? Well, I mean, Nobody really knows, but in the narrative of the Bible, it seems to come from the way the Israelites interacted with God during uh, their uh, journey out of Egypt. Do you remember this story, that God led the Israelites out of Egypt? Great miracles and wonders were performed all along the way, and then they went out in the wilderness and they camped, and God visited them uh, on top of Mount Sinai. you remember this? 
And he came in a cloud with flashes of lightning and thunder, and his presence looked so magnificent, so impressive, and so, well, scary that the Israelites were like, yeah, we don't really want to come close to that. Moses, you go, you chat with them, come back, and you tell us what he said. It's cool. Because they were freaked out by the presence of God. And that kind of started this tradition, this mythology, that you can't really be in the presence of God and survive. Right? So it was sort of based in fear. And Moses became the intermediary. And that's what the people had, had learned to expect. I kind of get it. Although, you know, I've become someone to crave the presence of God. Let me put it this way. When God speaks to you, you kind of have an innate sense that it might ruin your life. All right? Or l- let me put it this way. Uh, Gideon asked God for a sign here. Have you, have you ever had this interaction with God? I'm speaking to some of you veterans of the kingdom. Some of you have been following Jesus a long time. God, please, just tell me what to do with my life. I need to know. I need the assurance. I need the confidence of you telling me what to do with my life. Tell me what to do. And then God says, do this. And you're like, oh no. That's scary. I don't want to do that. If I do that, my whole life will come undone. I mean, think of all the sacrifices and the inconvenience and the awkwardness. And Have you ever had that experience? I just want God to tell me what to do. Oh, crud, God has told me to do something. Anyone? Anyone? And, and it feels threatening, you know? And depending on what the Lord tells you to do, it can feel lethal. It's like, no, 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 God, you don't understand. That could cost me my whole life. And God's like, well, yes, or restore your entire life, but, you know, you're going to have to put away the old one. And so it's, it's a mythology, quote-unquote, that actually has a tremendous amount of truth in it. And the Bible is just filled with stuff like this, right? You can read it on different levels. How stupid. The guy thinks he's going to see the face of God and die. Well, wait a minute. We act the same way, don't we? And there actually is some kind of reason that we would feel that way. It's just that the bigger picture uh, needs to be appreciated. Are you following me? If you follow me, just snap your fingers. The gentle reign of faith. Anyway, it's a small part of the narrative, but I appreciate uh, that it's it's there. And the Lord speaks to him directly, uh, and, and, uh, and this is a revolution in Gideon's life. It might even be the real sign. You know, there's the sign of the sacrifice disappearing and the angel disappearing, but the better sign might be that God speaks to him directly because that's the thing that transforms his life. Or you can say this, once Gideon realizes that the Lord is with him, he can suddenly hear from God for himself. And I think that's a great New Testament truth for all of us. Once you realize that God is not some distant, far-off judge, but realize that the presence of God is with you, the first thing that happens in your life is conversation with the supernatural God. You have to learn to hear from God for yourself, and then the adventure begins. It has worked that way from 1500 BC. It has always been that way. Are you following me? The point is to get to that point where you can hear the voice of God for yourself, and if you need a sign that the presence of God is with you, okay, but the presence of God is with you. And you just want that conversation with the Lord, your personal conversation with the Lord. You want that started. 
because that enables everything else uh, in the story. Amen. I hear a, I hear a chihu. Uh, the Lord said in peace, don't be afraid. He builds an, an altar. The same night, the Lord said to him, okay, so now the conversation has started. Now the story is beginning to unfold because Gideon is suddenly hearing from the Lord himself. So that night, the Lord speaks to him again. The Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd. Uh, there's a different way to translate that in Hebrew, uh, which says uh, take the, uh, um, the, the full-grown bull, uh, the one seven years old. That, that can just mean the mature bull. Uh, so... Don't get lost in a language. I know it reads weird, but uh, the Lord is probably saying to him, go take that big bull, tear down your father's altar to Baal, which was the false god of the neighboring tribes, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Asherah was uh, uh, another goddess. Um, so they had altars to two different, two false gods right there in the village. So tear down your father's altar to Baal and the Asherah pole beside it, then build a proper kind of altar um, that can be translated a stone altar, which was the, the normal Israelite way of doing it. Build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height and use the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So it's really cool. He goes and just wipes out uh, the altars to the false gods and he basically uses fuel uh, from the astral pole, offers a sacrifice to the one true God. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him, but because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night <laughs> rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? And when they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. And the people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die. This is going well. Because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. We'll stop there for a second. So uh, here's what happens. God is raising Gideon up to be a mighty warrior to deliver the entire nation uh, from the oppressive reign of the Midianites. He said, oh, you want to change the world around you? Deliverance starts at home. This is a tremendously poignant principle. It's like, before you can save the world, you got to clean your house. You know, you got to clean your world, your room. So go to your family's idols. Go to, go to the altars of the false gods at which you have worshipped your whole life, Gideon, and destroy those. And then you can worry about the outside world. Uh, so he goes to the altar of Baal, the altar of Asherah, and he destroys them. Um, <clears throat> full of faith and fervor. You might notice he did it at night. Um, okay, in his defense, that might have been the only practical way to do it. Because if he had tried to do it in the day, the villagers probably would have mobbed him and pulled him away, you know, and he wouldn't have been able to do it. Uh, but he also does it in secret, right? He does it at night, and then you notice that he doesn't tell anybody in the morning. 
and the villagers have to investigate who did it. And then eventually they find that Gideon did it. And he was like, all right, yeah, you know, busted. And, uh, and you know, he had good reason to fear because then, then they, want to, uh, they want to kill him. Um, these false gods have quite a hold on the village. Baal was mostly, as it was worshipped back then, a fertility god. Uh, and Asherah was also kind of a fertility goddess, had other things going on. Uh, but the, the way that they would worship Baal and Asherah were, were disgusting. It involved, uh, you know, on occasion, uh, the, sacri- the human, human sacrifice, or uh, particularly the sacrifice of babies, um, and lots of um, super strange mm, sexual acts in front of the altars, you know. Uh, so basic, you know, fertility rites and stuff like that were all kind of wrapped up with sexuality and the practice of it. And that gets a grip on people really fast, you know, when you go to like, you know, sexual behavior and desire and stuff like that. It gets a grip on people really fast. And indeed, these people seem to be deeply in the grip of Baal and Asherah. Uh, these gods and goddesses are still worshipped someplace in the world today. Incidentally, so here's a news flash. They want to kill Gideon for doing this. Here's a news flash. People are really attached to their idols. You ever notice that? People are really attached to their false beliefs. Even if their false beliefs and idols have led to great destruction. So basically, Israel is having problems right now precisely because they worship Baal and Asherah. So Gideon wipes out Baal and Asherah, at least in this village, and the people who have been oppressed want to kill him for it. It's like, you know, you uh, take, a, take a bullet out of someone's side and they yell at you for the surgery, you know? Um, there's just lots of examples like that in society. We don't have time to go in it today, but, but people get very attached to their false beliefs, you know? Uh, Baal and Asherah, are, they were like sexualized entities. I think the damage that um, certain sexual practices have, have done to our society, you know, this, this, the spread of diseases and, and uh, quote-unquote unwanted pregnancies or pregnancies out of marriages and stuff like that have just wiped out segments of our population. But... Uh, never, never before has conservative sexuality been hated as much as it's hated today in our society. It's considered oppressive in spite of all the evidence that promiscuous sexuality has caused such tremendous damage in our society. People are really attached to their idols and it's particularly difficult to destroy those that have to do with, you know, sexual and relational conduct and, and uh, I don't know, it, it has always had a grip on us. That's just one example. But people get attached to their idols and if you try to deliver people from their idols, they won't necessarily love you for it. Have you noticed this? Um, so, well, so be it, you know. Gideon has that experience. But the first battle the Lord led him to was to destroy the altars his father's altars, the altars in his own neighborhood, in his own, uh, in his own home. 
who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were called Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he's broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by mourning. Uh, which is a clever way of saying, look, you know, somebody just wiped out his altar in the night. If you defend that altar, maybe you're going to get wiped out this night. You know, he's playing with words here a little bit. Whoever fights for Baal shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerob Baal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. Jerob Baal is a, in Hebrew words that literally means to fight Baal, to fight with Baal. And so Gideon gets a really cool nickname out of the end of the story. He who wrestles, wrestles against false idols, or he who wrestles against Satan, that sort of thing. We know that uh, Joash, Gideon's father, is not a, not a perfect dad, you know, because, oh, he has a couple altars in his yard and uh, probably hasn't raised Gideon uh, to be a respecter of God in the way that he should have. Um, so not a perfect guy by any means. But I love a man who goes to bat for his son. Love this. And it's one of the things that just leaps off the page to me because it's a critical point in the story. Gideon is becoming Gideon. Gideon is becoming a warrior. And he gets into trouble right here, right? The entire village wants to kill him. And, and Joash, his dad, is the guy on the spot. Give up your son so that we can kill him for Baal's sake. <laughs> you know, uh, this guy must go. We are offended at his behavior. We feel that Gideon has judged us unfairly. So dad, give him over and, and we're going to lop off his head, and the dad, just being a decent dad, for Pete's sake, says, yeah, I don't really want my kid to die, right? This worship of false gods is great, but nah, nah, I'm going to draw the line here. I'm going to do something crazy. I'm going to stick up for my son. I'm going to stick up for my son, and uh, I'm going to stick up for my son in the fight, in the fight that that my son uh, is in. I don't know, maybe I make too much of that, but I think, I don't know, I'll just be chauvinistic about it. Dads, this is something you need to do for your kids. You need to make them believe that they can stick it out in the fight that they're in, and you need to do what you need to do to build them up in that fight and to defend them against the onslaught of society that tells them that they're worthless. Whatever your kids, whatever, whatever good fight your kid has picked, make sure you're there guarding their back, will ya? Um, and I just love that. And then in this incredible supernatural story, you get that little family interaction, a dad who's repenting. It's like, yeah, you know, maybe Baal's not so great. And in any case, if he's almighty, maybe he could handle it for himself. And, and for some reason, the village... Uh, goes with it. Joash is clearly a leader in the village, so they respect his word, and Gideon gets an awesome nickname, uh, contends against Baal. You know, Satan buster. 
cool nickname. Reminds me of Paul's uh, encouragement uh, to the Ephesians thousands of years later. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our, our battle is against uh, the, the principalities of this dark age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The first battle that Gideon learns to fight is the spiritual battle. You know, the first thing Gideon does on his path to be a powerful warrior, on his path from powerlessness to powerful, is he learns to choose God over and against the other gods in society. And he fights that spiritual battle. He, he becomes famous for that spiritual battle. He becomes identified with that spiritual battle. He is named because of that spiritual battle. And now he's ready. Now he's on his path to being the mighty warrior that the angel of the Lord said he was. Right. The first battle is always for identity, in other words. If you're feeling powerless in life, your first battle is for identity. All right, who am I really and what do I stand for after all? Do you know what you stand for? Because if you don't know what you stand for, you're going to get your butt kicked every day. Because there's a spiritual battle out there. And God's first move on the reclamation of the nation is to reclaim this guy Gideon and his first move reclaiming Gideon is to make Gideon aware of what he stands for. And it takes exactly one night to do it. One night. Now Gideon knows what he stands for. And now everybody knows what Gideon stands for. And I don't know if Gideon feels safe later that morning. I don't, I don't know that Gideon feels like it's all settled. But Gideon knows what he stands for. Now he has to be a warrior. Now he has to be who he is. I love that part of the story. And I think it's almost a universally applicable principle. I think it will apply to our lives as well. So uh, in closing, uh, I think what we find here in this story is what I call the epic problem of powerlessness. God almost always addresses people in their powerlessness. So why do you think you are so powerless? Why do you think you're such a wimp? Why do you blame me for all the evil in the world? All I'm trying to do is to make you grow up to be who you should be. That's all I've ever been doing. You might need some challenges for that. You might need some battles for that. You might need to stand up against someone or stand up for something. But don't just complain to me, right? I am not the reason you're powerless. If you are powerless, it's a different problem. If you feel stuck in life this morning, if you feel powerless, don't misdiagnose the issues. And God is always helping us to properly diagnose the issues. Step one, learn to hear from God for yourself. For yourself. Right? That's the most empowering thing you can do. It may also be the most threatening thing you can do. Because when God speaks to you, it's going to give you assurance, but it's also going to freak you out a little bit. Because he might call you to do something that feels a little bit threatening. But that's how you discover you're powerful if God doesn't invite you into a challenge, if God doesn't invite you to do something revolutionary, you'll never know how strong you are. Classic Bible. Classic. Classic God. And I guarantee you he's doing something like that in your life right now. If you just listen to him for yourself. I guarantee it. Why do I say that? One, I've read the Bible. And two, I've walked with God a long time now. God is calling you into 
some sort of challenging situation, quote unquote challenging, so that you recognize who you are and how powerful you are and so that you can be salt and light. The Bible has never said anything but that. Uh, so learn to hear from him about that. Two, you gotta get control of yourself because you can't change the world until you clean your room. You can't clean up the neighborhood until you've set your own house in order. What false idols do you have in your life? What false idols make up the milieu in your home? You gotta eradicate them, right? Or I could put it uh, a bit more generally. What false things do you believe about God? That's probably the first thing that you need to address to take control of your own life. If you are, if you are sunk in, in, in being stuck in, in depression and complaint, you're believing something incorrect about God. Now, I sympathize with you because I've been there, but that's got to get fixed, right? And there's probably some anchor point, some cardinal complaint, some idol, some false love, some false relationship that you need to eliminate first so that you can stand for what you're supposed to stand for, so that you can stand for the goodness of God instead of standing in complaint toward God. Got to do it. Got to do it. If you've been around here a lot, you know about my pitch battles against depression. You know that I speak from experience on this. You know, not from superiority, but from experience. This is something that you have to handle. And then three, you've got to learn to fight battles. You've got to learn. You've got to learn to fight. Particularly, you have to learn to fight spiritual battles. If you feel powerless, then primarily you're up against a false religion somehow. If you feel powerless, you have a false religion, not the right one. Because the religion that God puts into the world is a religion that makes individuals feel like world changers. That makes people who hide in holes feel like mighty warriors. That's what true religion does. It makes people feel like they have more than enough to share and to do at all times. That's what true religion would get you. And if, if you're not there, then you've in some, in some way, shape, or form held on to a false religion. You know what I'm saying when I say that? Are you following me? Uh, so your image of God has been corrupted, and you, you need to get that fixed. Fix this first, and then you can overcome whatever it is that you need to overcome. So I'll just kind of end with a question. Do you feel powerful in life, or do you feel powerless in life? Which are you this morning? Gideon makes me ask that every time I read the story. Do I feel like I need to hide in a hole? <laughs> or do I feel like I'm just going to go out in the land and wipe out false altars? What do I feel like? Right now, Gideon is figuring it out, right? He's still not where he is going to be. And we get to go on this journey with Gideon, right? And that's comforting because nobody is perfect the first day. And Gideon is far from perfect, uh, as we see. But we can help one another you know, as Gideon's dad helped him. We don't expect you to be perfect, but I want you to know where the journey is going. You're becoming a powerful person. And now you have a few clues about how to do it. If you feel powerless and stuck, don't stay there. That's false. That is not God. Whoever is making you do that, not God. Not God. Uh, so let's, let's get on this. Don't mistake a bad situation for God abandoning you. Your bad situation is not because God has abandoned you. 
that much we can say for, for sure. And the solution, uh, what I'm trying to do this morning, is not to make you feel shamed that you feel powerless or stuck or messed up. Here's the solution. Here's the first step. <clears throat> Listen to God for yourself. Because I can say these things as a messenger of the Lord, if I can describe myself that way, but ultimately you're going to have to hear them for yourself. That's first step. That's first step. First step. Hear from God for yourself. Every bit of the adventure comes from there. Let's pray. Where do we feel powerless, Lord? What's going on? Uh, what holes are we stuck in? What are the proper battles that we have chosen not to fight? And what are the inappropriate ways that we have chosen to address our battles? Uh, we invite you to speak to us this morning, Lord. Uh, speak to each, each individual here, I pray. Uh, point to the things that we've been scared to look at, maybe. Or remind us of the good things we once believed but have drifted away from. We'll just give you a moment, Holy Spirit, to do what you have been doing for thousands of years. Speak to your people, God. feel like reminding you, you know, you've got time. You don't have to be perfect right away. And deliverance starts at home, right? It starts in your own house. It starts in your own room. It starts in your own mind. One step at a time. One step at a time.